So here we're in the section called the travel log. We, we did the first um, section of the travel log last time. And that first section of the travel log started, uh, included the Good Samaritan. And so uh, if you missed last time, travel log is uh, from that point at the end of chapter 9 where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And the whole rest of the story, up, really up until Holy Week, uh, is, this, is along the road to Jerusalem. So geography is theology in Luke. And um, this section of Luke contains a couple of different things. It's got some of his most famous stories, as we talked about. So Good Samaritan was last week. Next week we'll be talking about the prodigal, which is my favorite story of Jesus' ever. Um, everybody's got their own, of course, but that's a classic. But then it's got the other element that's in this section is just a repetition of the themes that were announced in the first couple of chapters. So we're in uh, 12, 13, and 14 today. That is um, a section that contains no super memorable, like greatest hits. There aren't any greatest hits in this section. But there are recurring themes that we've already talked about over and over again. So that's what we're talking about today. Before I do that, um, is, there any, is there anything on anybody's mind about Luke that we need to revisit briefly before we get started? If not, then I will jump right into it. So we ended last week, two weeks ago, talking about demons and the devil. and But we're not talking about any of that anymore. <laughs> now we're going to get on to, to uh, chapter 12. Um, so... This section, this chapter, is about uh, hearing and responding to the Spirit. Some people do hear and respond. Some people hear and don't respond as they should. Uh, some people hear and respond the opposite way that the Spirit wants us to. That's a no-no. <laughs> and then uh, some people listen for the Spirit's call on their lives and do exactly what God desires them to do. And so this, this uh, section has... Um, I believe some of all of that. So let's get started. Chapter 12. Meanwhile, when the crowd gathered by the thousands so that they trampled on one another, he began to speak to his disciples. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, that is, their hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret will not become known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be proclaimed from the housetops. I tell you, my friends... Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he was killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. But even the hairs of your head are all counted. Do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. If you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, this is like th there's a lot of material in this section uh, that is um, kind of collected from various places in Matthew. We talked about, actually not in Matthew, in, in uh, Q. So Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel. Luke has his own material. Matthew has his own material. They've both read Mark and have incorporated a fair amount of Mark, and they changed some of the details. This is the two-source theory. And then they share this uh, theoretical source called Q. And... It's similar enough that scholars assume that they both have access to the same source. What Luke does is uh, gather some of this material 
um, that's scattered throughout Matthew and puts it in this, in this section, just so you know. The, and what we, we're talking about here, uh, his eyes on the sparrow kind of stuff. You guys know, know that song probably. Uh, that's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. But it's, it's obviously after his Sermon on the Plain. So the same, it's the same material, though. And I t- so this is verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be not denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. It's the only unforgivable sin. Y'all know that probably. It's good Bible trivia. Because, um, like, that means uh, that if you know what God has told you and you intentionally do the opposite, like intentionally do the opposite, if you deny, in this case, like in this context of this, these verses here, if you deny, the, what, like openly deny the Spirit, that's, you should know better. <laughs> like, not knowing better is not is not great but it's not it's not unforgivable but when we know better and do the opposite that's no bueno when they bring you before the synagogues the rulers and the authorities do not worry about how you are to defend yourselves or what you are to say for the holy spirit will teach you at that very hour what you ought to say so in in christian theology this theology of the holy spirit is called pneumatology it's uh, from the greek word pneuma which is the word for breath. And what happens in a lot of Protestant denominations that are not Pentecostal, (laughs) Pentecostals are all about the Spirit, but a lot of Protestant denominations end up spending all of their theological airtime on Jesus for obvious reasons. Um, And the Christian life sometimes gets kind of summarized down to me, Jesus, and my Bible. Right, that's that's what I need to be saved, quote unquote. When really <clears throat> pneumatology is in Luke's theology for sure <clears throat> the most important aspect of theology, because we've been talking about quite a bit how for Luke there are these three uh, epochs of of history, right? So there's Israel, there's the era of Jesus, which we're talking about in the gospel, and then there's um, the era of the church. And the church, you probably can't read that, the era of the church is guided by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, and not just in Luke, in John's gospel says, the Spirit will guide you into all the truth. You're going to be better off if I go away because the Spirit's going to be with you always. So this part of, the, of God's great salvation history, the era of Jesus, is the shortest period. <laughs> There's the era, era of Israel and the law. Um, then there's the era of Christ. That's God incarnate. I'm not minimizing it. But in this era, in the third era, uh, which is what Luke, this author is going to talk about in the book of Acts, it's all about the work of the Holy Spirit. And just as the Holy Spirit is with Jesus at every stage of his life, guiding him, leading him, baptizing him, with him before he's born, with him all the way through the uh, resurrection, so the Holy Spirit is with us as well. And so this, this section here where he says, uh, if you're drugged before the authorities, don't worry about how you're to defend yourself, that's written for this era, the church's era, right? Because Luke is writing to his audience. He's, he's, Jesus may very well have said that, but it's, 
in this context, it's written for Luke's audience. And so pneumatology, even for John Wesley, was really the most important part of the, spirit, of the, of the Christian journey because we've talked about this in, uh, like you'll, you'll hear me talk about this a lot. There's three different types of grace in Methodist theology. It's the same grace. Grace is the love of God and the power of God working within us. So provenient grace is what is in us before we come to faith in Christ. Justifying grace is the moment we place our faith in Christ. That's that moment of faith commitment. And exactly. Sanctifying grace is what we spend the rest of our life exploring. So justifying grace uh, is, is the point of emphasis for a lot of Christians specifically our Baptist friends and non-denominational friends, it's about the moment of getting saved. And I'm not saying this judgmentally, I'm saying it descriptively. For John Wesley, clearly that's a crucial moment in our lives because that's the moment when everything changes. That's this, this relative change before we are judged and condemned. Afterwards, we are judged and forgiven. I mean, that's what justifying means, put in a right relationship with God. But unless we're the thief on the cross and are going to go meet God today, it's actually what we do with the rest of our lives that God's most interested in. And, and this justifying grace moment is the cross. That's, that's our faith in, in the death and resurrection of Christ that saves us. But sanctifying grace is the work of the Spirit within us. And that's when we listen for God to... Um, uh, lead us to grow in our faith for uh, in our love for God and our fellow human beings. And Wesley was very clear that, again, unless you're the thief on the cross, like if you if you have your moment of justification and you die, okay, that's that's good that you had that. Um, but this is just the doorway to the house that we spend the rest of our lives exploring. So. As we're on this process of sanctification, if, in his case, you're drugged before the authorities, because that was a common problem for Christians in the early church, don't deny <laughs> the experience you've had. Don't turn your back on Christ, even though in that moment it's a moment of um, conflict and pain. Stick with it, and the Holy Spirit will lead you through it. So pneumatology really is something we probably should talk more about as Christians. And you can see why blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would be a massive problem. <laughs> because once we've placed our faith in Christ, it's the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. It's blasphemy against God, because we're Trinitarian, but it's a particular aspect of God's being. Does that make sense? Paul says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is active in this provenient grace moment where we're being led to Christ. Uh, the Spirit is the one who empowers us to put our faith in Christ. And then the Spirit is the one that, that guides us in the rest of our spiritual, in our, our journey, our Christian journey, until we go to meet Jesus at the end of our lives. Okay, this next section, the parable of the rich fool, is only, this is unique to Luke. 
and uh, it's going to to sound like it. <laughs> Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. That's bad news. Families and money. Woofty. Especially after somebody dies that has money. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be judge or arbiter over you, arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We've been reading Luke long enough to know he, this is a big deal for him. It's, uh, money, money is not the root of all evil. Y'all know that. It's love of money that's the root of all evil. Having money is not a problem. Being in love with your money is. Being overly attached to it is. And so, especially, uh, we're going to hear uh, this theme of reversal in the 14th chapter that we've been reading from the first and second chapters of Luke, where the last shall be first, the first shall be last, the rich shall be uh, humbled, and the poor shall be exalted. It's this, this theme of overturning. Um, this is especially true for this author. It's, it's consistent throughout Jesus' ministry, but this is a point of emphasis for Luke in particular. So verse 16. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. It's just it's a matter of priorities, right? And so uh, in the church, when we talk about like the practice of tithing and the practice of generosity, that is about where our priorities lie. It's not, a, it's not about whether or not having money is a problem or, um, you know, being wealthy is not an issue. Jesus doesn't say um, uh, the whole... Uh, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Like he doesn't say rich people won't get into heaven. He says with God, all things are possible, <laughs> but with God, all things are possible. So it's, it's about where we place our, our lo- first love and our priorities. There's a much more strident version of this with the rich man and Lazarus that we get to later in, later in the gospel. So then this is another thing uh, in, beginning in verse 22 that comes up in this, uh, I, I erased it, but this, this Q document that's also in Matthew. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor, nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothed, clothes the, the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you're to eat, what you're to drink. Do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, 
an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Very consistent. I mean, it's the Sermon on the Mount stuff, just in a different place in Matthew. So if we are hearing this, the, the Spirit through the teachings of Jesus, then the question is, how do we respond? Do we worry more about bigging, building bigger storehouses for all the stuff that we have? Um, or do we place our first priority in God? Basic stuff, but it's a theme that, that's repeated over and over again for this author. So verse 35, be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as they, as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he'll fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them, so blessed are those slaves. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? (laughs) Do we have to worry about this or are you talking about them? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and prudent manager whom his master will put in charge of his slaves to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly, I tell you, he will put their, uh, that one in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and if he begins to beat the other slaves, men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces." and put him, in, put him with the unfaithful. That slave who knew what his master wanted but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did, and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. From anyone to whom much has been given, much will be required, and from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. With great power comes great responsibility. Is the way Spider-Man says that. <laughs> but it's, I mean, you see, it's the, it's the theme. Actually, it's Uncle Ben who said that to Spider-Man. But if you hear the Spirit's leading, are you going to respond properly? I'm sure some of you heard me. This is a true story. Tell this story. Uh, Pope, the Pope who was John the 23rd, who was Vatican II? Is that John the 23rd? Um, was asked during Vatican II, like he was a very charismatic Pope. And during this, Vatican II was this massive moment of reform for the Catholic Church. Uh, Really inside baseball stuff for anybody who's not a Catholic, but massive, massively important for Catholics. And one of the reporters asked him um, what he would say to Catholics around the world if he knew Jesus was coming back today. You heard this story? (laughs) He said, I would send out a message to all the cardinals, to tell all the bishops, to tell all the people around the world, look busy. (laughs) 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 Clearly he had read Luke and that that section on the watchful slave. Mm -hmm. So you see, it's, it's all this, it's all related. If you, um, the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, denial of God or intentionally turning away because, uh, we're not expected to know what we don't know. <laughs> we are expected to respond when we've been called. And um, 
again, Luke's Jesus is the Sunday school Jesus. It's the Jesus holding the gentle lamb. He's the Jesus who's, you know, wanting to eat dinner with that wee little man, Zacchaeus, the, the Jesus who forgives the thief on the cross. We have this very um, kind of friendly view of, of the Jesus depicted in, in Luke's gospel. And yet, there's this undercurrent throughout that when it comes to these important themes, listening to the Spirit, turning when we need to turn, and taking seriously the needs of those with less power, less money, less stuff, um, he's really unequivocal. I mean, there's plenty of stuff about slaves getting beaten and cut up and thrown in the fire and all that. Speaking of which, verse 49. I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Come on, man. Come on, Jesus. You're, tell, me the good, tell me the good Samaritan story. <laughs> tell me the prodigal story. I have a baptism with which to be, to be baptized and what stress I am under until it is completed. And he's on his way to that destiny, right? This is the travel log. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, on uh, on five and one, let's see. From now on, five and one household would be divided. Three against two and two against three. They'll be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a, a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say it's going to rain. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Thus, when you go with your accuser before a magistrate on the way to make an effort to settle the case, or you may be dragged before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, or the officer throw you in prison, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Um, in this era of the early church, there were plenty of houses divided. Like this is a, this is a less common occurrence for us, right? We parents raise their kids in the church. The kids, you know, what they do with that is of course up to their own choice, much to the chagrin of parents sometimes. Um, but in this generation of the church, people were hearing the gospel for the first time. And so you would, he, you would have uh, Gentile families where mom and or dad would get on fire for the gospel. They would have this justifying moment. They would, they would want to grow in their love for God and their fellow human beings. And somebody else in the house wasn't on board. Like there, it wasn't as though everyone was culturally Christian even. So what he's saying here is it's the same concept as um, um, shows up in the gospels as fictive kin where Jesus says who are my who are my father who is my father who is my mother who are my brothers like who who am I really related to and it's his answer is those who who believe like my family is my family of faith um so when your house is divided and some are maybe hearing and not responding to the spirit or hearing and responding the opposite of what the spirit is calling or hearing and blaspheming the spirit the most important thing is god in our priority list and uh sometimes people you know it's easy to get this twisted like it's got 
there's a, there's a ranking here, <laughs> an important ranking. Our relationship with God comes first. And while family is super important, of course, faith and family are my two core values, but faith is listed first. Because um, what I'm called to do is live the life God's calling me to. And I can't, I can't get sidetracked by that if not everybody in my family is on board. That's what this first generation of the church was absolutely talking about. This next, uh, in 13, the beginning of 13, this is only in Luke also, these first, uh, all the way through 17, these first two little uh, sections. And my study Bible, I'm not sure how yours, um, the subtitle for verses 1 through 9, mine says repent or perish. Is that what y'all say? It's a big deal. (laughs) And repent, just to remind ourselves, doesn't mean beat ourselves up or feel guilt or shame. That's not what it's about. It's about turning. So if I'm walking this way, God wants me to walk this way, I need to turn this way. Healthy guilt, if we've done something wrong and and we need, you know, if it helps us to get turned, that's fine. But repentance is not about, you know, the flogging our backs and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's got a kind of a negative connotation. <clears throat> but it really means a, a changing of the mind or, in Hebrew, a literal turning around. So at that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This, is, you know, this doesn't appear in the history. We don't really know what's going, what Luke's talking about. But... Something not good, for sure. He asked them, do you think that because of these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. And then to make the point, he tells them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this, on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. There's a, there's a fig tree story in many of the Gospels. Um, because there is this, it's one of these agricultural metaphors that Paul picks up on it too. So uh, the relationship between a tree and its fruit is, um, uh, it tells no lies. Good fruit does not come from a bad tree. Um, A good tree does not produce bad fruit. So when, the way Wesley thinks of this in the path of sanctification, if your faith is true, then you will, your life will bear fruit that God's looking for. And he, you know, um, you know the list, right? The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, et cetera, et cetera. If you uh, claim to have faith and yet your life does not reflect the life that Christ is calling us to, then um, it, something's wrong with your faith. That's the bottom line. And so this agricultural metaphor comes up over and over again, not just in the Gospels, also in Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Even if that takes manure. <laughs> it ain't always easy. 
<laughs> That's exactly right. Because you can have a grove full of fig trees and this section over here doesn't get any water or it's in too much shade or never gets weeded. And so it never produces what it should produce by its, by its own merits. Like it's a fig tree, it should produce figs. A lot of reasons why it doesn't. There's another parable, uh, the parable of the sower. Like where, where you throw the seed affects um, how much fruit or uh, harvest that produces. And so uh, that's a different parable, but it's the same concept that um, if, we're, if we want... Uh, there's a, a phrase that Wesley uses. Fruits meet for repentance. Like he combines these concepts. Um, meaning, your, uh, and this is for people who want to be ordained. So if, if my life um, is bearing the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, general self-control, that means that I have repented of what I need to repent of and I'm properly responding to the Spirit. That is what God is calling me to, to be a tree, <laughs> a tree that produces fruit. Um, I have been created, so I'm not, uh, I'm not responsible for my own creation. I'm created as a, a person called to be a child of God, a, a son and daughter of you know, Abraham, all that kind of stuff. Um, but ultimately I can affect how I live that faith and whether or not I'm nurturing it, whether or not I'm doing the things that should be, I should be doing to grow in the faith, um, whether I'm turning when I need to turn, when I screw up. And uh, across the board, this is Wesleyan, it's Pauline, it's gospel. If the fruit aren't there, then the faith needs fixing. <laughs> yes, ma'am, 100%. He'll throw plenty of manure on it. <laughs> Right. Well, and yes, the, and so uh, the thing, like, at every step of the road, we have the grace is a couple as a twofold concept. Grace is forgiveness for sin, uh, and in kind of evangelical circles, that's really the emphasis: forgiveness for sin. But it's not just that; it's also power to live differently, and so it's fertilizer. <laughs> right? It's pruning. It's also fertilizer. Manure. Okay, so then Jesus is going to heal a crippled woman. Crippled woman. Now he was teaching on uh, in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. This is his last reference to being in a synagogue, by the way, which is pretty early in the gospel. Um, doesn't mean he was not ever in the synagogue again. It just means that the last, the last time Luke says he was in the synagogue. And just there, just then, there appeared a woman with a spirit who had, uh, that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand, quite unable, it's a fun phrase, to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free of your ailment. He laid his hands on her. Immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. And we read that, it's easy to read that pretty, I mean, as Christians, we read that and think, what are you talking about? Why would you ever complain about somebody being healed? From the rationale of a first century Jew, though, <laughs> he's got a point. There, you can come any day. 
it's been 18 years. Like, why you got to, why you got to break the Sabbath to do this? But Jesus is clearly making a point. Uh, 15, the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from the bondage on the Sabbath day, from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he had said this, all his opponents were put to shame and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. Crowds rejoicing. The legalists were like, but, 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 the rules, the rules say, here's what we've believed. And again, I, I want to be as generous as possible to this. Is it a Pharisee? Does he say he's a Pharisee? Um, the leader, the leader of the synagogue. So maybe it's a scribe, maybe it's a Pharisee, but it's someone who takes his religion very seriously, right? I mean, this is a believer. This is a one. This is one who who uh, is a dedicated believer in God, and absolutely believes that the law, the rules, the things we have followed for centuries are really, really important, and there's no reason to violate them in this case. That's not an unreasonable argument, right? Uh, so the fact that Jesus is turning that on its head, I think, is um, well. It says something about his priorities. That I'm reading um, one of my Lenten disciplines. I'm reading a book by Howard Thurman. Have you guys heard that name, Howard Thurman? Uh, I wrote about him at, in the column at Christmas past couple of years. He taught at um, Boston University for a long time. And he wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. He was from Florida. He was the grandson of a slave. And um, this little book, it's, it's five chapters long plus an epilogue. It's 103 or four pages. Um, MLK had taught, I mean, had studied under Thurman. Thurman had taught MLK. And... Um, he, MLK ended up carrying a copy of this, the entire civil rights movement. It really very much influenced his thought. And um, I just finished the chat. So one of my Lenten disciplines is to read this. I've never read it. <clears throat> I've read Thurman, but I've never read this particular book. And uh, I finished the chapter last night on the plane because I had a long time in the plane to finish the chapter <laughs> um, on fear. And he talks about how when we when we come to realize that it's not just that God cares about people, it's that God cares about you, me specifically, with whatever, whatever thing it is that the world deems less than, and obviously he's talking about race in his case. Um, it's when we, like the power of that, uh, of God's individual investment in every single one of us is transformative in and of itself. And so when, when Jesus uh, sees, first of all, she's, she's a woman, which puts her as a second-class citizen automatically. And citizen's not as an, as an anachronistic word, because she's not a citizen of the empire. Um, she's had some kind of ailment, which was assumed to be connected with sin. So she had done something wrong and hadn't gotten, hadn't gotten right with it for 18 years. And she's bent over in the, in the uh, synagogue. And uh, I heard a sermon on this one time. Uh, clearly, he, went, he got down on her level and talked to her. Right? Jesus wouldn't have done this number. He would have said, 
he would have been talking like this in that part that, he, that we just read. And the fact that he considered that connection and that moment of empowerment and grace in both instances, forgiveness, whatever she felt like she needed to be forgiven for, because he mentioned Satan in here, but also the power to be different. That moment of connection and grace was more important than centuries of rules. Like that's, a ver- that's a theological shift, a significant one. And what Thurman's saying is um, the power of the gospel, the Christian narrative has the power to free people. <laughs> like There's freedom in that. And sometimes we get wrapped up in the wrong things and, and we lose sight of that essential one-on-one connection where God, Jesus, get the God revealed in Christ, incarnated in Christ, meets us where we are. Even when the religious folk don't like it. It's pretty powerful. When he wrote that, um, you know, there were plenty of people who thought that was controversial. He was writing, he was a southerner in the, in the lynching era, in the Jim Crow South. Okay. Verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and what should I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. Just a little thing, right? We all know how small mustard seeds are. I'm sure you've seen some object lesson in that at some point along the line. Um, Took and sowed in the garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Jesus went through one town and village after another, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. In case we've forgotten, we're on our way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? You notice how how often this comes up. This doesn't really apply to me, does it? Like, there's just a few of us getting in, or can I be first? Like, that's our, our human incl- inclination. Um, he said to them, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, for, for many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. When Once the owner of the house has got up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then in reply, he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I do not know where you come from. Go away from me, you all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrown out. Then people will come from east and west, from north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some, of, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. It's this theme that keeps coming up over and over again. These next verses are only in Luke. That that very hour some pharisees came and said to him get away from here for herod wants to kill you Uh, and this is an important point so he interacts with the pharisees a lot right he eats with pharisees um not all pharisees entirely miss the mark here they're looking out for him there's there's no uh, there's no indication here that they're trying to trick him like they're really warning him so while they're challenged by what he says they're still hosting him and he's still engaging with them. So in this moment where he's trying to reemphasize an important part of their theology that they've lost in his view, in our view, um, 
still they're, they're hanging in there. Like Nicodemus in John's gospel. You know, he comes to Nicodemus. Uh, and Nic- Nicodemus comes to him at night. And he doesn't quite get it. But then he shows up again at the end of the gospel. It's, um, for some people, that's what it takes. So, verse 32. He said to them, go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I, will be, I must be on my way because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. I don't know what that means, but clearly he is indicating his final destiny is in Jerusalem. Then he says, so that's all unique to Luke, and then this, is, this 34 on is in the other Gospels. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who came, comes in the name of the Lord. We know when that is, right? That's Palm Sunday. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then 14. Is where it's, uh, we have 15 minutes and we have, um, what is it? 35 verses, so we're good here. So on, on the occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal, here's what I'm talking about. So he is still engaging with the Pharisees, even though they have some fundamental disagreements. That is a great lesson for everybody. <laughs> we don't all have to get along. We don't all have to agree in order to get along. Right? I do love that. Um, so he's at the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal. On the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, If one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on the Sabbath day? Of course they would. <laughs> right? Of course they would. Is it illegal? Yeah. According to the law? Yeah. Does that really matter? No. Not really. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone uh, more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. This is good just social etiquette here. <laughs> but when you're invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he might say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We first heard this in, on Mary's lips in chapter 1. He said also to the one who had invited him, so he's talking to a Pharisee, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, so on the guest side, don't exalt yourself. Uh, now, on the host side, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return, and then you'd be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. One of the dinner guests on hearing this said to him, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus said to him, Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything's ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of land. I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've, brought, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've just been married. Therefore, I cannot come. 
So the slave returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to the slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the lame, or sorry, the the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, Go out into the roads and lanes and compel many people to come in so that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. It's pretty self-explanatory, right? Um, I've, I've never invited, like when I'm throwing a dinner party, I, I don't invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, the poor. Um, but the point here is consistent, <laughs> that we have to care about um, we have to care about those in the margins. So this theme of reversal we, is, comes up again and again. And then this theme of um, intentional ministry to those in the margins, and that refrain is the poor. How does it read? Poor, blind, crippled. Thank you. Poor, crippled, blind, and the lame. So the, there's a there's a consistent in first century society the consistent theme of those listed here. Do you know what it is? Um, they all must have done something to deserve what their their current state. And that's what so if you're poor it's because you're lazy or you're a sinner or whatever. If you're crippled it was an indication that you'd I mean unless you had an accident that uh, you had sinned in some way same with the blind and the lame it's in the gospels a lot it's problematic theology but it's this idea that if you do good you get good if you do bad you get bad that's from it's deuteronomistic theology and jesus is saying i mean in some cases he he uh specifically calls that theology into question but more often than not he uh says it doesn't matter i didn't come the doctor doesn't come to heal the healthy. The doctor comes to heal the sick. So if indeed these are all reflections of some sin, this is like, in, in a way, it's uh, shorthand for sinners who are certainly on the margins. And then in this parable of the, of the great dinner, when he, who do you think he's talking about when he says, go out farther? So we've got, so we got this group, we've got the sinners, of various flavors there at the table. Now we're going to go out and get everybody else. You know who everybody else is? Yep. So these are the people who should have known better because they already know God. And these are the people who, should, who wouldn't have known better because they don't know God. And these are the people that I want at my table. Now, for me, it's, um, it's both and. <laughs> so I want... Uh, the gospel is for everybody. But for Luke, who is writing to a primarily Gentile audience, <laughs> he is very much interested in making sure that his audience doesn't think that it's only people who are uh, part of this first era who are important to God. Jesus is expanding who's important to God in our salvation history to be inclusive <coughs> of the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike. Sinner Jew, saintly Jew, Pharisee who gets it or is trying to get it, Pharisee who's not getting it, 
And then, of course, Gentiles never heard the message before. And once you hear the message, <laughs> the next thing you got to do is respond to the message. And when you don't, repentance is the thing. Turn back. So in this section, these three chapters, they seem kind of redundant. They're, they're, um, they're incorporating a bunch of material that is very familiar to all of us, even though some of the specific presentation is unique to Luke. It's exactly what we know Jesus does, right? If we've, if we've read any of the Gospels, we know this is, what, this is how he, he does it. He, um, he's got this kind of judgment message that's mixed in with this very inclusive message, with this very grace-filled message, the crippled woman. And it's all of a, of a piece with these themes that have been laid out at the very beginning. And he wraps up this section by saying, Luke, I'm saying, Luke wraps up this section. Now, the large, now large crowds were traveling with him. <laughs> so he's not just going to visit them where they are. Now they're joining the party. And he turned and he said to them, it's a good image. All y'all who love what I'm saying here, let me just remind you <laughs> of what this is all about. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has, to, he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. This echoes something he had said earlier. Take up my, take up your cross. And there's one more word. You remember it? He does say follow me. Daily. If you're taking up your cross daily, you're not being a martyr. Right? That's impossible. We're not going to die more than once. When we take up our cross daily, it's about uh, discipleship being a costly endeavor. So he's using this very strident language. Uh, I personally do not believe that Jesus wants us to hate our father or mother or children. That's not who he is. The point that he's making is that uh, to be a disciple is to live sacrificially. Sacrificially. And just in case we're confused and we're digging the idea that we get forgiven over and over again, which is a pretty good deal, admittedly, and that we're in even if we weren't part of the old club. I mean, that's all good, but it's, but it's not free. <laughs> and um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer... This is from traveling. It's not from a cold, I promise you. Wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, which is worth reading if you've, ever, if you've never read any Bonhoeffer. And he, he, um, 
he makes the distinction, Bonhoeffer does. You, you know who I'm talking about? Uh, let's see, Bonhoeffer. Between what Jesus uh, clearly says over and over in the Gospels, and certainly here in Luke, the distinction between costly grace and cheap grace. Cheap grace is you're forgiven, you're good. Do whatever you want. Costly grace is you're forgiven. Now you're empowered to live differently. Do it. (laughs) And the Gospels are really clear which one Jesus is actually preaching. Um, Now, that's a pretty tough message at the end of 14. In 15, you know what story we get? Prodigal. So this brilliant author has a brilliant way of, like, to me, this section of the gospel is the, um, is the kind of, is the slog. Because <laughs> he's given us these tough messages in a, in a series and repeating them in a series. But he bookends it with the Samaritan and now the prodigal. So that, yes, grace is costly for sure. And yes, there is a high cost of discipleship, but man, (laughs) is it worth it? Because it means that each of us is called by God. And each of us is offered a relationship with God, and all we have to do is say yes. Once we say yes, the Holy Spirit begins to work this transformation in us. So that those times when discipleship is is costly... uh, we are not paying that price ourselves. <laughs> We're, the Holy Spirit is walking with us through it. And I just love that. I love it. So, look at that, 429. Boom. Not bad. All right. Thanks, y'all. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll, we'll get to my favorite story in Luke, the prodigal, and uh, some other good stuff as well. Thanks, y'all. Go in peace.